Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is the show where we share cutting edge strategies and acquiring leads and sales to acquire more customers for your business. And we're pretty excited about today's guest, Kasim, sitting in the virtual green room here. Somebody that you've been wanting to have on the show for quite some time here. And I think for all our agency owner listeners out there, they might gain a little bit of level of expertise about the limitations of scale. A lot of agency owners that are listening to this show might say, all right, I'm at this level right now. How do I sort of break through to the next level? And the guy that we're going to be talking about here today is has been able to do that sort of to a large degree. You've been in close contact with him through a couple of different masterminds. Pretty excited to have Eric Huberman on the show here today. So uh, without further ado, Eric, welcome to Perpetual Traffic. Yeah, thank you for having me. So as we ask every guest who comes on, what tasty tidbit or what nugget do you have for the Perpetual Traffic listener sort of whet their appetite for what we're going to be talking about here today on today's show? Oh, I think we're going to be talking about a lot, but I'd say uh, that you can build a large business without raising money would maybe be a good one to look at. A lot of folks right now, I mean, especially in the agency space, there is a lot of private equity groups that are soliciting small agency owners and running counter to that wisdom, which you guys have done the exact opposite and been able to build it 100% organically through not only organic growth, but also through acquisitions. And I think it's not something that's really on agency owners' minds, especially maybe the smaller ones that are maybe in the dozens of employees or maybe all 1099s. But you guys were able to do it since 2014, 2015, and uh, we're pretty excited to get into exactly how you did that after this quick break. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. 
So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. And I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Welcome back to Perpetual Traffic. We're here with Eric Huberman. Eric was one of my very first entrepreneurial heroes. And if you don't know who he is, I'm just going to do a quick bit of, let's say, edification, credentialization, whatever the term might be. Because I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful for the listener to know who it is you're hearing from. Eric is the founder and CEO of Hawk Media. He's helped grow over 4,500 brands. Hawk does $500 million a year in gross revenue, which incidentally I've always thought is near impossible for a service business. So we're going to dive into how he did that. He's the author of The Hawk Method, which was a USA Today national bestseller. He's also the founder of Hawk.ai, Hawk Capital, and Hawk Ventures. He's one of my favorite speakers at every conference I've ever been to. When Eric is speaking, I always make sure I carve out time to hear him talk. You're going to find out why. Eric, if I haven't turned you beet red... Dale Carnegie says that sincere and honest flattery is an acceptable form of offering up appreciation. So this is my best attempt at doing all that, but super appreciate you being here, man. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So first question, and this is just me being selfish because I want to learn from you too. I feel like growing a service business to $500 million is damn near impossible. Talk to me a little bit about how you structured that growth. And I'll scaffold my question just a little bit. Every new phase of growth for a service business, and they almost all reach the same thresholds. There's like that zero to three million, three to 10 million, 10 to 20 million. And you, you enter these phases where the entire substructure of your business can't scale to the next level. You almost have to rebuild your business each time. So what I did was sell. I just sold my business. Once we reached one of those thresholds, I was like, all right, I'm cashing the check. This is fine. You know, now I take the concern of money off the table. But how do you do that? How do you roll into these next phases of scale without having to just completely stop all momentum? Yeah, it's, well, a couple of things. One, it's almost a cliche of like, you can't scale a service business because some of the biggest businesses in the world are service businesses, Accenture, Deloitte, the, the top four accounting firms. You've got BCG, McKinsey, Bain, like, these are massive, massive companies, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of employees, and they are service businesses. So even early on when I used to hear, like, because it's very common, even 10 years ago, people would say, like, you can't scale a service business. With me, I'd already sold two e-com companies, had other businesses I'd built. And like, why would you do a service business? Those aren't as scalable. And I'm like, what do you mean? Have you looked outside? It's actually very scalable. So I think a lot of it is putting barriers on yourself. I studied what the revenue per head those bigger companies were getting. Like, what are the metrics that I needed to look at that the bigger companies were informing me on that told me what the path was to success with this stuff and how you would be able to grow. Let's not reinvent the wheel here. Let's do a lot of what has worked while focusing on having a differentiator. I think that part's important is kind of learning from what's out there. And then in terms of, you said it pretty clearly, but every time I'd say you double, the entire business infrastructure needs to change. And so how quick you are to do that, how quick you are to adapt at those different inflection points also will dictate your level of growth, your ability to scale. And you said it, like sometimes it get, you get to the point where it's like, I don't want to rebuild my company again, which is kind of what it feels like every time you do this. And so you sell. And that's why, frankly, and you mentioned a lot of thresholds, but that like there's somewhere between 10 and 15 million that is like, after that, it gets really hard for a while. 
because you have to build like a senior executive team, a full HR practice, a legal practice, a finance and accounting team that's robust. You need all this infrastructure, but you're not necessarily making enough money to cover it all. So it gets pretty tight. So either you're overwhelmed because you have you don't have the infrastructure you need to manage a business that size, or you're making almost no money because you have the infrastructure, but you're not big enough yet to absorb it all. And so that step is where we see a lot of agencies try to get out. Prior to that, again, it's basically cut that in half, cut that in half. So it's like the seven to eight million range, the kind of three million range, the one and a half million range. I see people sub a million, they manage a 500,000, a million dollar agency for a long time and go, I don't want to just do this anymore, but they couldn't get past that point. And in every one of those phases, there's different needs that you have, depending on also your own skill set, your ability to grow a business, all the pieces you need to make that business sustain as well as grow. It's figuring that out each step, which is why the uh, chart behind Ralph is so poignant. That staircase is way more accurate than that straight line, because that's really what ends up happening is you're like flatline for a while, you figure it out, you figure it out, you try to figure it out, you're kind of up against the wall, you're kind of bouncing like this. And then you figure out that inflection and you shoot up again. And then you get to the next plateau. That's how I've seen business growth go more commonly than just this up and to the right when it's not funded. When you're funding, you can just dump money into it and get through that growth phase. But when you're doing it off your own cash and your own bootstraps, that's when it looks more like a staircase from my experience. Don't you think there's a danger to the funded agency that puts them in a position of constantly making that mistake, which is, oh, I'll just throw money at it. I'm just going to throw money at this problem up until the money's dry and now they're screwed. I don't think it's agency thing. It's a company thing. That's why we have an investment arm too. We have our old venture arm. I'm looking for companies that know how to grow and launch their business themselves. And my money is just adding to the fire, not helping them sustain. And that's the difference. Like you want to look at your unit economics. You want to look at how profitable can we be? And then if you want to dump more money into grow faster and you have the right unit economics, that's fine. But it's your money. The money should never be to solve problems. You shouldn't have that many problems that you need money to solve. That's where you, it gets really dangerous because that money can run out. The past couple of years where funding has been just tight. I don't know the last time raising money was harder than the past two years. For this long, sorry. 2008, it was hard. 2001, it was hard. But like for a year and a half going on two years, you've been it's been hard to raise any money. Like I don't know the last time. And it's weird. They rocketed rates, but they've also drawn this out in a way that people are hurting. I'm surprised there isn't more pain, but I think we also have so much money coming out of COVID. It's the other side of it. But that's the part. Times like this is when those companies that were just throwing money at problems are gone. So you said a writer downer there that I just want to repeat, which is money specifically investment funds, but money shouldn't be used to solve problems. It should be used to amplify what you're already good at. And I'd say 51% of the time or more, people seeking to raise funds are seeking to raise those funds to solve all their problems, which is a super scary place to be. Yeah. I mean, you're just kicking the ball down the road. Those problems are going to come to fruition. If you raise money, you're just extending your runway a little bit. So, and a lot of people do that. They raise money to make that last another year or two before they have to call it a quits, but it gives them a salary for a couple of years. And that's what honestly investors have to be careful of is investing in something that that's how they're operating. You want to be making money every day. Like that's important. Going back to the growth and scale conversation, because I think that's where a lot of our listeners are really going to be interested. When you're small, I'm going to call small anything sub 20 million gross rev. So from 500 grand to 20 million, your framework or agency thesis doesn't really need to be exceptionally scalable. Like you can be as bespoke as you want to be. You can dive as deep as you want to be. Past 20 million, you've really got to have something of an assembly line. 
And so with Hawk specifically, I'm curious, the structure that you have now, which I describe as kind of like the SEAL Team 6 of marketers, where you bring a team and chopper it into somebody's business, did you start that way or did you reinvent really? So that was the original thesis the whole time. Yeah, it was because I wanted it to be. One of the reasons I think we've been successful is my desire to constantly scale and grow ourselves and other companies. That's why I do what I do. And so the original thesis was if it's not scalable, I would drive my team crazy by saying, well, this won't work when we're 100,000 people. So I would always be looking at how to build process and procedure. Now, I will say I wouldn't go quite assembly line. I think that's where you get in trouble, too. I think people over process things. And if you can't rely on having smart people make good decisions, your product are people. We have to have smart people. And that's, again, going back to like the larger consultancies like a McKinsey or a Bain, they're not assembly line. If they came in with the same plan for everyone, they'd be screwed. And so there's a way to train people to think the right way and to manage the right way that doesn't necessarily end up looking like robotics. It looks like smart people that have been trained well. Nature versus nurture. How much of it percentage-wise is training versus just hiring the smartest guy or gal in the room and throwing them at problems? I'd say it's probably 80-20, like 80 smart people, honestly. At the end of the day, like training can only do so much with someone that's not up to it. Like There's processes and things that we do that it's like the way we manage accounts, the way we report, et cetera. Like those are super important to like help them avoid pitfalls that we've already figured out. Like this is how the way we need to communicate so that clients don't get angry, that kind of stuff. But you need smart people to actually execute. At the end of the day, that is where the crux is. So when you're getting started, you know, you're Hawk Media and you're a business of one, how do you talk the smartest people in the world to come work for you? Because you can't offer what everybody else can offer. Even if you can match their salary, you don't have like the ivory tower and the $12 croissants and all the bennies. Like, what do you do? Yeah. So it turns out nobody gives a shit about the $12 croissants. Like, <laughs> um, we went through that phase and got out of it. It's amazing how much money you can spend on perks thinking they're like these intangibles and they'd rather just hand them an extra few bucks and they'd be happy. Those perks aren't really perks. No one's keeping a job because you have massage. Like we've literally had massage Fridays, kombucha on tap, all that stuff. Nobody actually kept stayed at Hawk Media because of those things. So it really doesn't do much. In terms of, I would say the salary piece is important. If you're matching the salary, then it's a function of what's going to be more exciting. And so one of my favorite interview questions here is, would you rather be overwhelmed or bored? And it's a really insightful question when you ask it the right way, because I'm trying to find people that want to be constantly working, constantly building. They hate being bored. That doesn't mean anyone, no one wants to be overwhelmed or bored. That's why the question works is because nobody's necessarily like excited about being completely bogged down, but no one's excited about being bored all the time. So when you ask it, the way people start to talk about it, and I've had it go both ways where someone's like, oh, God, yeah, I hate being bored, like overwhelmed. I don't want to be overwhelmed all the time, but I'd much rather be there than just sitting around. That's usually the right answer or somewhere along those lines. But then I have people that are like, well, no, like both kind of sucks, but I don't want to be overwhelmed all the time. So like, I definitely like some downtime. And it's like, you might not be the right fit for Hawk Media if you're waiting for downtime. The people that like working here want constant, like it's always something new. You're working on different clients, you're jumping into different things. It's fast paced. It's changing all the time. If that doesn't compel you and that's not exciting to you, this is not going to be the place you want to work. In terms of attracting those people initially, there was so much speed going on in the sense of like constant new clients, this new innovative way of looking at marketing. We were getting on tons of great new brands. It actually wasn't that hard for, to get people that were like, I want to be a part of that. Like, there's something going on here. One of our guys that has been with us probably eight years now, I remember I had an interview him or hire him. And then one of our clients asked for his resume and he was like, CMO of Red Bull, head of media for both Adidas and Mercedes. 
and like this crazy resume when we were nothing. And I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, I've been on a rocket ship before and I know when, when I see one. Like, wow. And he's still That's here. That's a compliment. So, yeah. And so it's those kind of things that it's like the seasoned people see something new and exciting and innovative. And then younger people, like it was just the energy. It was super high energy, super fun. I would take the team on a cruise to Mexico every year. I was 27 when I started this. So like we were having fun. That was part of it too. I was growing up with our team and figuring shit out and trying to run this business. And we were doubling or more every year and trying to figure out how to keep up. Like that part was exciting too. But on that note, because you said this and we talked about this a little bit, every time you double, as we talked about the infrastructure changes, the business changes, your people change too. Meaning like there's a lot of people that can't keep up with that speed of growth. You have a decent turnover when you're growing that fast because people can't get comfortable and a lot of people want to be comfortable. Well, we had a lot of great people in the first few years that didn't make it past that because when we became bigger, they're like, I don't want to be a part of a bigger company. And so that there's changes there too. Like you mentioned the ivory tower, the more infrastructure, the bigger business. There's people that we've attracted now that would have never joined us six years ago. That now we are a bigger business. So now they want to be a part of this. The stability, the perception of stability with a bigger business, which probably is reality too, comes in with a lot of people. They want that stability as part of their job. And you have to be comfortable with that evolution too. You start to burn off some of the people that you love and maybe you think, gosh, that's the heading in the wrong direction, but it's an inevitability. Exactly. And that's the thing. Thankfully, we have tons of people that leave on great terms and like that's part of it. But yeah, when you're growing, like there's a lot of people that just don't learn fast enough. Like that's the thing. You have to learn the business again and again and again and figure things out. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They're like, I just want to do what I was doing. And by the way, both are a blessing because like, one of the issues we run into too is if we can't advance the other types of people, the people that want change all the time, well, if we can't create change for them all the time and we want someone that's a cog in the wheel that's going to do a great job over and over again for their clients and just do that, that's also hard to find. Or people that, like, you want both. You want people that love their role, want to stick with it, make enough money. They're not trying to take over the world. They want to make their money so they can live their life and they like their job and it's a job. That's You need those too, especially at a certain scale. Stop me if this gets intrusive, but your comp structure, are you giving people profit share, equity? Like how do you align your interest with theirs? So we don't do profit share or equity. We are constantly changing the comp structure, honestly, because it's a moving target in the sense of trying to figure out the best way to compensate. We've always tried to be creative with it. And you start to realize that there's a reason bigger companies do it the way they do. You know, it's you, it's easy to look at big companies and be like, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. Like, oh, we're not going to do it that way because like we're going to innovate on that. And then you start to, de- and this has happened a lot with our business, where you start to go, now oh, I get why they do that. We've jumped around different ways. In terms of equity or profit share, no, because with equity, the only time that comes becomes worth anything is if you sell. Well, if we're not ready to sell or on the path to that, then it's a bullshit offering. And then it creates, for me, I never wanted a bunch of silent partners. If we ever sell, everyone's getting bonuses, everyone's going to get paid. That's not going to be an issue. But if you're not here at that time, then... That, yeah, I don't believe the idea of like earning, spending four years at a company, earning equity, and then 10 years later, it sells and you get a piece of it. That's not, I don't rationally vibe with that. You have to see it through to the end. You have to see it through to completion to be a part of it. That's my view of it. In profit share, you have no control over growth. In. So I'm giving you a bonus on something that you don't have any control over. It's a passive thing. There's no reason to do that. So instead, we incentivize and bonus based on their individual contribution. Like how, if you're a salesperson, how are you exceeding the numbers we need you to hit? Obviously, commission's part of that, too. If you're servicing clients, like, how's your retention of clients? How much money are you managing for us? Those kind of things come into play. And really, we're trying to drive the behaviors we need from the individual people on the team 
to then builds up into an overall success of the business. So talk to me about that stair step of growth for agency owners that are listening here. Because I, I think a lot of them are sort of stuck at individual levels. It's always, and I don't know who said it, but it's like every time you 3x, you basically everything breaks, if not in and around that point. So zero to 100,000, 100,000 to 300,000 to a million, million to three, like it just sort of goes on from there. One of the things I think a lot of agency owners really, really struggle with is that CX component, is that customer satisfaction component. And where do you sort of double down on that in that evolution of growth, which is a challenge because this is a service-based business. And going back to Custom's original premise, which is obviously <laughs> not accurate based upon your success and the success of the Baines of the world and the McKinsey's of the world, is that service businesses can't scale because you always have that CX component. So talk to me about like each individual step, like where your challenges were. If you can remember that far back, it was CX always sort of a component of it or what did you weight it more in one stage of growth versus another? And how did you sort of navigate through that? Yeah, I would say you always need to do good work. People ask, why has Hawk been so successful? It's like, because frankly, 99% of marketers have no idea what the fuck they're doing. It's not hard to compete with a bunch of charlatans. When people come in and work with us, they're like, oh, wow, you actually deliver what you say you're going to. The fact that that's a novel idea is crazy. But uh, when I talk to a lot of the new agency owners, a lot of times they don't actually know anything about marketing. There's no barrier to entry to start an agency. They see a Ty Lopez video or some bullshit. They go, oh, I can start one too. And then they see, we talked about this before getting on, but like someone driving a Lamborghini and talking about their agency. And it's like, oh, that could be me. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You forgot the key ingredient here. You need to actually know what you're doing in marketing. That's important. I know that there's no barrier. It's crazy to me that like you need a license to cut hair or actually deliver milk in the US, but you don't need a license to manage half a billion dollars in marketing budget. It's absurd to me, but here we are. So that has been one of the biggest challenges. And that's where I see a lot of agencies struggle. That's number one. You're churning through clients because you're not doing good work and you can only keep up so fast. At some point, you can only bring in so much business and you're losing it all the back door and you hit this equilibrium where you can't grow the business because your sales can't keep up with your churn. That is a rough business to run and that's why you see a lot of burnout in agency owners, you see a lot of plateaus, like that's number one, if you're not able to keep your business. Now that being said, we deal with churn too because we also work with small and medium businesses that they by nature are all over the place. And so regardless of how well we're doing, a lot of times small and medium businesses are shifting. So let's assume you're doing good work and that's table stakes. The next piece is having that sales funnel to replace that business and to keep growing. And I'd say that's an important piece that I know we've really nailed in terms of like, we've been able to grow a lot because we're able to, we drink our own punch. Turns out we know how to do marketing. So we market ourselves and it works. And then the last piece of that, that I think people miss is the margins. Uh, A lot of people don't understand the importance of having decent margins on your agency so that you can reinvest in marketing sales, so that you can invest in the future, so that you can invest in growth and hire people and have some bandwidth. Because a lot of people don't think about that ahead of time and they end up a slave to their own business because they're paying their people way too much. We saw it in the great resignation. We refused to pay these stupid rates that we were getting competitors paying because we knew it didn't pencil for the business. We're like, hey, I get it. If you're going to make three times as much money in another company... Go hope it, hope it lasts six months and you've got a year and a half of pay. Like, I get it, leave. But we're not going to match that. And I watched, we because again, we have our M&A side. We look at hundreds of agencies' books 
throughout the year, if not thousands. And there are a lot that ended up giving these raises and promotions and paying people too much. And now they can't run a profitable agency because there's no way that they can charge clients enough to then build that person out enough to actually make any money. And so margins, marketing, and client retention, I'd say, are the three. Now, client retention, again, servicing them well and communicating with them well are the two biggest things. Communication, I think, actually trumps actually doing good marketing. If you're good at communicating and aligning and talking to your clients, you'll keep them long. And we've seen this in the data constantly. If we're good at communicating and talking to our clients, they're going to stay a lot longer regardless of performance. That's key there. And then if you cover those three things, I think you're actually going to be doing all right. You know, this is maybe the most important thing that's ever been said on perpetual traffic. Hey, so if you're listening to this and you're an agency owner, honestly, if you're a business owner, stop the car, pull over, write this down. Communication is more important than good marketing, i.e. communication is more important than the deliverable. And I've seen this too. My biggest fail point in early stage at Google Ads, we were phenomenal. We crushed life, but we spent so much time, you know, we're deep, dark, cave-dwelling, nocturnal, over-caffeinated engineers that like to work at night. And so we're sitting there really doing the work, but not telling the client we were doing the work. And the client was always pissy with us. And then we got really good at communication and they preferred that to the good work. I could do C minus work and good communication and they'd rather have that than A plus work and B minus communication. Like it's so, so critical. Build that into the fabric and ethos of your business. Well, it's important to understand is human nature. We use logic to justify emotions. If I feel good about you, I'm going to find a reason why I want to keep working with you. If I don't feel good about you, I'm going to find a reason why I shouldn't be working with you. And so making sure you, like the communication side plays to that emotion. Why are people hiring you? Because they don't want to manage this. It's a bandwidth or expertise thing. They either need bandwidth because they don't have enough time to manage all their marketing even if they're an expert, or they need expertise because they're not an expert. So one way or another, you need to satiate that desire to be like, I need help. And so they need to feel like you're that one, that you're better at doing this than they are. You have taken this off their plate, and you are the expert, and you are helping them save time. And if you don't fulfill that, and they're going to find a reason to be out. Dude, that's another writer downer. Agencies are bandwidth or expertise. That's it. Or actually, we always talk about bandwidth, expertise, or a punching bag. Some people just want to hire someone to yell at. (laughs) Even that's a little bit of expertise, though, because it's like, I need you to know how to take a punch. Yeah, touche. That's fine that it's like, even if you're not getting the success, it's having the enthusiasm and the ideas to say, all right, well, we tried this. This didn't work. But here's what we're going to do next, because we actually care. And it's like the thing that, that ends up being the the real linchpin for retention is that these guys just give a shit. Like they, they actually care about what it is that I'm doing here. I mean, is that, and if you can infuse that in your smaller agency, that's one of the keys to success is, is what I'm hearing. Well, how do you do that, Eric? What specific systems do you have in place to process size communication? Is there something like that at Hawk or is it just, I hire smart people that know how to do this? No, we have a ton of process to it. And we have a whole AI system that monitors our client communications and flags when we, we flag correlations between when we lose clients and what the communication was like. And so that we can actually say like, oh, if we, wow. like, for example, we thought apologies would be a bad sign. Like if we're saying I'm sorry in our communication, well, shit, we screwed up. And so we monitored all these apologies that were going out. And then we monitored how the clients retained. And we found actually apologizing did the opposite. When we oh, take ownership and apologize, clients were like, oh, you actually took ownership and we can trust you because you actually owned it. That actually had a positive effect on the relationship, even though 
we were apologizing because we made a mistake or something happened. The fact that we just apologized actually retained clients better, even though we thought it'd have the opposite effect, which meant, so we're apologizing. We did something wrong. We're going to lose a client. It was the opposite. So it's things like that that we actually monitor using AI now that allows us to actually see what is causing us to lose clients. Is that AI monitoring, is that your tech or is that something we can go buy? I don't know if it's public yet. I can't share it yet, but it's a friend of my co-founders that we installed and it's pretty cool tech. It's not being used much in the agency world, but if I can, I'll follow up with that. Do do that. I mean, we'll pimp it out all to death because I'd, I'd be the very first public customer. That sounds amazing. It's pretty amazing. So it's a sentiment analysis tool. Like you guys do that. In, in, well, it's not in even internal. sentiment analysis because it's not giving us a dashboard of like, here's all the sentiment of your clients. It's literally like, these things were said, heads up, or and we set up all the triggers. So like we haven't responded to a client in 24 hours is a trigger, which we know is kryptonite. If we're not responsive, game over. And so now we have a trigger to let us know if an email is missed, et cetera, then it then pings the person goes, hey, heads up, this person hasn't been responded to. You need to get on top of it. Is it all so, email based or are you doing Messenger, Slack? Like where do you allow clients to communicate with you and your team? Generally email, and then we do do Slack upon request, but we try to- I hate Slack. It's where things go to die. It's impossible to monitor. That's the problem. That and marketing doesn't work on a minute by minute basis. And a lot of people that aren't savvy in marketing think it does. And Slack just perpetuates that where they're like, let's change the ad. Like the ads have been up for an hour and we haven't had sales. Change them now. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't do that. So Slack just allows for that feeling of everything's urgent, which we don't want to create. So Slack is giving a toddler a megaphone. Like, I, I don't want you to have the ability to communicate to this degree with anybody on my team. I want you to act, sit there and think about what you're about to say. Yep. I hope none of my exactly. clients listen to this podcast. Yep. <laughs> don't worry. They probably don't. We are here with Eric Huberman of Hawk Media. We're going to be getting into probably a question if you're an agency owner. How do you grow a business to $500 million in revenue, especially in the service space? side of things. Whether you're a business owner or whether you're an agency, I think that's a pretty good question. It comes back to, obviously, there's three segments to that. One of the things that I really like to delve into after the break here is marketing. What's the right way to market and stand out against the crowd? So we're going to get into that with Eric right after this quick break. Hey, do you want to work with the best client-focused agency in the world? I mean, one that helps purpose-driven businesses achieve their vision? Well, it's time you check out Tier 11 as a career choice. Right now, we are hiring for a lot of different positions, but the most important one right now is our client success owner. The CSO is one of the most important positions at Tier 11 because they're the linchpin between our clients and our team who ensures smooth communication and excellence in service delivery. When I built this company 10 plus years ago, I always wanted to have a virtual organization that has strong company culture and a client-centered focus that really took things to the next level, but also enabled purpose-driven businesses to achieve their vision through what we do every single day through customer acquisition amplification. So if this sounds like you and you have the skills required to be an awesome client success owner, head on over to tier 11 forward slash jobs, tier11.com forward slash jobs, fill out the CSO application. We'd love to talk to you about how you can take your career and our client success to the next level. All right, we are back. We are here with Eric Huberman from Hawk Media talking scaling. And the big question on my mind is, how do you market? You said, you know, there's three ways in which you can actually scale, but marketing is obviously is a huge one. Every single stage of growth probably requires a different 
type of marketing. Can you maybe take us back through in time sort of how you did it and what your recommendations would be today to ultimately build you know, a half a billion dollar company? Yeah, I think to start, there's no shortcut. People want to go hire a SDR in India to just go spam email people. And like, yes, that can work, but it's honestly a very limited approach because when's the last time someone spam emailed you and it was like, I can grow your business. And you went, thank God you emailed oh me. Let's go. Like, You're just the email like, I was waiting for. I've been waiting for you. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you I, I wasn't going to call anyone for marketing, but now that you emailed me, I'm in. Let's do this. Like, I love the, the subject way, line, can we talk? Question mark. I yeah. love that one, especially. Yeah. 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 And I, then, I'll open you know, all those. I'm just yeah, kidding. All the, like, Hello, Eric. We really admire what you've been doing at company. <laughs> we all get a ton of them. The people that respond, like, I don't know that we've ever gotten a really big company through like a cold email. We'll get small businesses and stuff like that. That's not how a decent client's going to hire you. Really thinking about the buyer journey is super important. And if you're a marketer, I hope you know how to do this. That's the point. If you can't do this, you might be in the wrong line of work. I'm trying to remember who told me this, but it was a really poignant thing when I had my t-shirt company. And it's like, there's two types of sales. It's why you need this product or service and why you need to buy that product or service from us. There's certain companies, I'm trying to think of a good example, like water. Y'all need water. Why are you buying this water? I don't know what water is this. Trader Joe's natural spring water. I think this is what my office bought. But uh, why are you buying that water versus any other water? That's just a differentiation process because I need water or I'll die. So like, why am I going to drink that versus out of the sink versus liquid death versus every other water out there? Like, why am I going to buy that water? And that's one type of sale. The other type of sale is kind of like look around like something, a whoop. It's not like I'm buying a whoop over the other options. There are certain type of person that like they have a app like like me, an Apple Watch, an Aura Ring, a Whoop, like all these things, and they're trying all the different ones. But Whoop is mostly in the job of selling the fact that you need a Whoop. Period. Not why you need it over something else. Meaning, like people don't assume they need a Whoop, and you're just trying to be the one they buy from. And so there's two different types of sales. With marketing, almost all business owners accept the fact that they need marketing. So that part's done. You don't need to explain to people that oh, you should grow your business. Like yeah, no shit. Almost every business owner wants to grow their business. So even if they don't, they're probably not a good target for you. That's table stakes. So then the challenge is, why you? Why is it your business? And so from a marketing standpoint, for a very long time, we talk about in our book, The Hawk Method, got to flash it. So book we put out, we talk about like our principle, there's three principles of marketing, awareness, nurturing, and trust. And so awareness, how do you get the word out there that you even exist? Nurturing, what do you do with that awareness to actually turn them into a customer? And then trust also synonymous with brand, but how do you build the validation and the trust that people are actually about to buy from you? My focus for the beginning, I created awareness by just being everywhere. I was at every event. I was on the road all the time, talking to people. I was just in front of people as much as possible. And I'm a decade into this. That hasn't changed. I am still all over the place. I'm still at events all the time, still in front of people on podcasts, whatever. That's where I create some of the awareness. Now it's expanded a lot. But in the beginning, it was just me going out and being at networking events and talking to people and going to conferences and doing that. And then nurturing, I stayed in touch with people. I had phone calls. I emailed them. I kept in touch. It was that simple. The trust factor was where I really focused effort. How do I make people believe that we're the best at what we do and like constantly reinforce the idea that we are the best? Because if I can get that piece, again, they already know they need marketing. I've made them aware I exist. I'm staying in touch with them. So the only checkbox that I need to check is why should you hire me instead of another agency or in-house? Why is Hawk Media the choice you should make? And so 
in the beginning, before you have a bunch of case studies and a bunch of validators, it was third-party validation. So it was getting press on us. It was getting influencers to talk about us. It was building referral networks. It was having word of mouth. It was having reviews. It was all these things that I we preach every other company to do. And it was just making a point that like, even when we had, and by the way, I don't know that there's an agency on the planet that doesn't have a client that's had a bad experience. It just doesn't exist. But like we talk about it now, we have, I think, six bad reviews on Google. Out of 4,500 clients, we have six bad reviews. And they still come up and people go look at them. But my job is to make the positive so compelling that the little bit of negative that's going to unavoidably come out, they look at this one person complaining and these thousands of people having success and go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And that's part of the game is like you have to constantly be building your brand and building your credibility. And at some point, you can't fake it. In the beginning, I would say like when you've got a few clients, et cetera, you can talk about you know your success. You can show like the results you're getting, that kind of stuff. But that stuff for good marketers and people that are a little savvier becomes bullshit really fast. And if you get labeled a bullshit artist, you're screwed. No one's going to touch you. So at some point, the rubber has to meet the road and you have to be showing, look at all the success we're having with our clients. Again, that is really what I feel like at the end of the day grows us to this point on the sales and marketing side is that trust factor. Now it's much bigger. We have a best-selling book. We have a TV show coming out on August 12th, which I don't know when this is airing, but it's probably right after that. So we're going to be on TV helping Cedric the Entertainer and Anthony Anderson launch a barbecue company. So when people go, oh, I don't know about Hawk Media, it's like, well, it's two of the biggest celebrities in the world and a TV production company feel differently. Like it's that kind of thing where I think it's really important for agencies owners to know you're going to get bad-mouthed and you're going to get positive. What you want to happen is, this has happened for me. I'm not in the room. Someone with some small business that worked with us eight years ago goes, yeah, I didn't really have a great experience. And I'm like, really? Like They crushed it for these hundreds of companies. So objectively, they're good. And you want to make get to the point where you're objectively good at what you do. And then the other stuff, like running ads on Facebook and Google and sponsoring events and all the other things you do in marketing all work because that credibility is there. I love the idea about when I'm not in the room. I think that's a really interesting goal to reach for. I want it so that when I'm not in the room, there's somebody else that's going to advocate for me or stand up for me or speak on my behalf. That's what a fun paradigm that is because it really lights a fire under you. It's a breadth and a depth requirement. That's awesome. It forces you to do the right thing. Like, again, we have, you can, it's public. There's like six people on Google that hate us. I'm sure there's a few more that didn't write on Google. I know that in all those situations, we made the right decision, regardless of how they feel. Like we, we had one recently where a guy came and built a website with us, then put someone else in charge of managing us, then fired that person, then put someone else in charge, then fired that person, then saw the work that that person was managing with us and decided he didn't like any of it. And he wanted a different website than we had been instructed to build. And then we're like, okay, but that's going to take more time and money. And then he asked for a full refund. And we're like, no. You had us working with your team. This is what your team said. Here's the paper trails. Here's everything we did right. We do this all the time. You didn't manage your team and asked us to work with them, then fire them. This is on you, man. Fit wrote on Google something along the lines of, he paid us 50 grand and we never did anything. That's the kind of thing that's going to happen. But when people see that, they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they stole $50,000. That, that's what this stand-up business did. We know that we did the right thing there. There was no rational reason to do free work for that guy. In other situations, if we screw up, we take ownership of it. And it's like doing the right thing. I always use the example of like, not that we want everyone to go into legal because that's a waste of everyone's time. But I want to know that if a judge looked at this, they'd be like, yeah, that was the right thing to do. Not because of protecting my ass, but more because I want to be fair. It's something I'm known for and have a reputation for. Like, I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to just give freely. I'm going to be fair, objectively fair. 
Yeah, I, as a young agency owner, I went the wrong way there. The fairness that I would insist upon was only outward. People could mistreat us, ask for absurd things, and I'd like refund or I was just so desperate not to piss anybody off. But I like the emphasis that fairness needs to be a two-way street. And you actually need to stand your ground and say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And it's hard to do early. I had the same thing where we had people that took complete advantage of us in the beginning. And sometimes you couldn't fight. I remember I had a client ask us, he's like, hey, I'm about to raise money. I really need to keep cash. Can I just delay payment with you guys for three months while I close this round? And at the time, we're like, you know what? We want to be good to our clients. Sure. So we get to the end of the three months. He's like, your team's amazing, da, da, da. And I go, hey, you raised your round, right? He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, can you pay up your bills? He's like, no, I'm not going to pay those. Wow. What? He's like, no, your team sucks. Oh, we were great when you wanted free work, but now that we're actually holding you accountable, okay? And he said something along the lines of like, if you pursue this, I will run your name through the mud and make sure you never work with everyone again. And I will sue you and run you to the ground. And now I have $20 million so I can make your life hell. And like, just was an asshole. But I was a small business and I couldn't do anything about it. But it turns out the statutes of limitations on something like that's pretty long. So I waited a few years and then we went after him and got everything. Did you really? With interest? Yep. And he, That's he awesome. same threats. But at that point, I'm like, dude, now I'm on par. Like, I didn't need to raise money. Now I have plenty. Like, fuck you too. I will say when someone's that obnoxious, it does bring me joy to t- put them in their place. There's a point of that. that's like, you took advantage of me when I was hurting. Now that I'm not, we're going to go after this. And that's happened a few times. It's sad truth, but I talk to a lot of agency owners. If you haven't had a situation like that, you haven't been in business that long. People take advantage. They're, not everybody does things for the right reasons. And if you're in business, you're going to deal with that. Same thing comes up when we do get feedback from our potential clients. Sometimes like, hey, we saw these bad reviews. And pretty much every time I go to their website and show them their own bad reviews. You go, do not do oh, that. So all about it. <laughs> like, it's like, we all deal with this. We all deal with these scumbags. The percentage I've seen is about 3% of people, in my experience, are just out of their fucking mind. And that is part of running a business. You just have to know that that's a part of it, that you're going to deal with some people that are just shitty and irrational. Yeah. So, that's so the, funny. I'm going to steal that, go to their website and show them their bad reviews. Oh, that's that's true. It works, by the way. It's, like, <laughs> it's a two-way and, street. And had, yeah. I had someone bring it up recently. Like, hey, we saw a couple bad reviews. We're a worried about it. And then they're like, but we just looked at our own site. We have our own bad reviews. Like, they beat me to the punch. We're like, we get it. We just want to be assured that you're going to take care of us. Like, of course. And again, we're talking about six bad reviews out of 4,500 customers. Obviously, we're not just a disaster. There's a few people that went sideways. So if it's awareness being out there and then just staying in touch, that sounds like a lot of people can do that. That's just really time. Obviously, awareness could be a money thing. Plus, it's a time thing. But then it's a combination of all that. At the end, just sort of cutting to the chase, the trust factor of like, why us over anybody else? Is it a unique mechanism? Is it something like 40 some odd thousand agencies out there? And chances are there's probably a few that are listening to this show here today. Is it a unique mechanism? Is it Eric Huberman because I trust him? I trust Hawk Media? Or is it something specific like we have a, I hate to say it, secret sauce, secret formula, but a unique mechanism back to Eugene Schwartz that no one else has that pushes them over the edge? Because that's the question that I typically get with agency owners. Like, how do you get to that point? Is it niching down? Is it a specific method? What is it? Like from your perspective, what sort of advice would you have to agency owners at that level? Yeah. I mean, the number one, and I say this a lot, is if you're not the best at what you do for your customers, then you're by selling them, you're scamming them. Be good at what you do. That is the first secret. From there, highlight that. The nice thing is, as you mentioned, 40 something thousand agencies, but 99% of them are full of shit. And so if you're in that category, God help you, you probably won't run a very big business and you're going to struggle. But if you are in the 1% that is actually good at what they do, 
it's not that hard because you're competing with all these people that are terrible. I'm friends with most of my real competitors, the guys that actually are good at performance marketing. We're all friends because there's plenty of business to go around. No, we're not overly transparent with each other, but at the same time, I grab dinner with them. We talk, we keep each other updated. We do actually help each other out in different ways. Like even Gary Vaynerchuk and I have a great relationship. In a lot of ways, we've had business come from them to us and vice versa, but it's plenty to go around and I admire what they do and vice versa. They seem to respect what we do too. And so we send each other business and referrals when it doesn't work for one of us and that kind of thing. So there's that piece where it's like, if you're in that inner circle of like, you're good at it, then it's just highlighting that. And then again, like the secret sauce thing, if you try to force that, you're going to get really dumb clients that don't see through that bullshit. This is the negative selection process with customers that happens when you, again, when you start promoting the fact, like the Ferrari promotion or the Lamborghini promotion, where it's like, look, I afforded a car that costs less than any employee I have. Like that side of it, the people you attract are the lowest common denominator, people that are attracted to that. And they're probably not very successful people. And that ends up being your client or these like, churn and burn, like I'm going to get rich quick scheme kind of shit that like you're not going to build a great agency. So you have to also think about like who you're attracting with the type of marketing you do. Like I, Gary Vaynerchuk, again, I talked to him about this. His audience has become very much like the entrepreneur, the aspiring entrepreneur. And that's his audience, which doesn't really feed his agency. His agency in itself has done a great job of getting some big brands and building a great team and doing that. But for me, I decided to build a brand more focused on B2B. I want every CEO, founder, CMO to know about me, but I don't need a million followers on Instagram because there aren't a million people I'm trying to work with. So it's that kind of like thinking through who is, you know, because a lot of people I think get into that dopamine hit of like building their personal brand and their audience and that side of things. And they end up with a great consumer audience, as I put it, where it's like these people aren't going to hire you to do marketing, but sure, now they follow you and you have 500,000 followers None of that's turning into any business. I guess it's a great vanity metric, but that's about it. Yeah, they buy books and that's sort of where it ends. Yeah, right. And again, if that's what your business is going to be is selling books, then go for it. You want to sell courses? Fine. Then that does work. But really identifying what are you trying to build and then honing in on that. And again, that secret sauce pitch, if you truly have a secret sauce, like for us, when we started, our pitch was we're your outsourced CMO. Month to month, a la carte, cost effective. That was our pitch. That was unique a decade ago. Nobody was, no agencies were month to month. They didn't have this a la approach. Your outsourced CMO is our trademark. So these were all unique things for us 10 years ago. We're now switching that entire pitch because it hasn't really kept up. Like it has, don't get me wrong, we're doing great. But like we're ready for the next phase of this business. As we've talked about, you get to new plateaus and you find the next way to grow. And so now we're changing that. But our secret sauce, so to speak, in the beginning was that we were really good at what we do and really easy to work with. And that's how we started. Now... We have a lot more. Now we have our venture fund that has, you know, 60-year-ish MarTech and EcomTech platforms that we're owners and partners in that we're literally funding the innovation in the space. We have our own AI, proprietary AI platform that allows us to, in real time, compare a company's performance marketing against seven to 8,000 other companies so that we can see exactly where your low-hanging fruit is and what's working and what's not. And we've been doing this for 10 years and for over 4,500 other brands successfully. That's our secret sauce now. So that's how we put it. For you, it might be your past, your expertise, your focus, whatever it is. It's something that's going to resonate with a certain audience and you need to figure out what that is. I am cautious about niching down. I think it gets thrown around a little too much. I actually don't think I would ever want to hire an agency focused on one vertical. I think it's myopic. I think it doesn't, it tells me that they're not good at thinking outside the box and they're probably running a game plan that worked for one company and just doing it over and over again, which 
marketing is competitive. If you're not being creative and innovating, you're going to have a hard time being hyper successful. And with me, marketing has infinite opportunity cost. So not saying it can't pencil, but I want to find the person that's going to crush it for me. You know, it's funny about that. I own a Google ads agency, which isn't one vertical. It's one proficiency. Yeah, that's different. I believe in proficiency, not vertical. Well, what I was going to say is the limitation applies. So, and I'm not jumping to my own defense. I actually believe you. What I'll tell people is I'm not really a marketer. We're a group of data nerds. We don't do creative. You need a CMO or a marketer or an agency. That's why I refer so much work to tier 11 because I'm like, I can't do any of this. We're just here. We got really, 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 really good at this one thing and that's all we can do. And then people sort of begin to rely on us for marketing proficiency when they shouldn't. Yeah. But again, so like how we built Hunt is actually in line with that though, where it's like we have vertical proficient people in Google, in Facebook, in TikTok, in email, et cetera. Like I believe in specific expertise around a channel. I don't in, in regards to an industry. I think that's where you get narrow. So I do believe that you should have people that know because there's so much to know about Google through and through that you need people that that's all they do. Yeah, it's getting worse and worse every day too. Yeah, they like to throw us for a loop. For people that are on the precipice, and what I mean by that is maybe they're going to sell, maybe they're going to grow. If you were to push them in one way or the other, knowing what you know now, because you're on the other end of it, you're in the end zone. I have to imagine there's a decision engine or a decision tree where it's like, if this, then that. Yeah. Every time you turn down a sale, assume it's going to be a decade till you get another one. Wow. That those, holy shit. So let's dig into that a little bit. That's interesting. Because listen, you're always potentially on the front end of a financial disaster or an economic disaster. And when that happens, like the past two years, which by the way, we don't know when this is going to come back. I literally got on the phone with some of our advisors on the venture fund, which I was on the phone with several billionaires yesterday. And half of them think we're going to have a soft landing here and everything's going to be fine by the end of the year. And half of them think it's going to be like literally blood in the streets. That was the quote. I think there will literally be blood in the streets is what's coming. So nobody knows. And so we're always on the precipice of disaster. And so if you turn down an offer, an exit of some kind now, that number, that opportunity may not come back for a 10-year cycle before it's back to where you are right now. And so knowing that, so you can make that very conscious decision, I've turned down huge offers for Hawk, knowing that that would come. And then it did. I mean, we were worth more at the end of 2021 than we are right now. To almost two years later, it's going to probably take me, I mean, we're growing, but it's still going to probably take me another year or two to get back to the value I was at in 2021 because of how crazy the markets were. Now, maybe I'll accelerate that, but just knowing, and thankfully we make money along the way, but I could have taken money off the table in 2021 and sold this company. And I'm going to spend another three to four years to just be back there. That's the part where like, you have to just be consciously making that decision and comfortable with the fact and that's, by the way, that's optimistic. If there is, if my, well, some of these guys are right, there's disaster, it could be 10 years. And so knowing that when I made that decision to pass, I made it with the information I had and I was conscious at some point you're going to hit a problem and it could be a disaster and it could take a grind of another decade before it comes back. So just be aware of that. So like, think about what you want 10 years from now and do you still want to be doing what you're doing? A lot of times the answer is yes, which it was for me in 2021. I had two huge offers. I turned them down. I was about to turn 35. I turned 35 at the end of 2021. I was like, yeah, I can do this till I'm 45. So let's keep going. But when I'm 50, do I want to do this when I'm 60? Maybe not. And that's the part I'll see when I get there. That's really important. And then two, something I've realized more recently is there's a lot of huge expansion and opportunity in growth and joining a platform or selling. Depending on who you are personally, like I'm lucky that my wife's a senior executive private equity fund. We've been together almost 10 years. Like I've been exposed to the finance and financial engineering side that we're doing a lot of it with our own M&A and stuff. But if you don't have those chops and that exposure, 
getting that private, like I've had private equity companies come look at my business and go, oh, wait, you're already doing what we would do for you. Then they just become a check, which is like, do I want to sell right now or not? But for a lot of people, like having that backing and that infrastructure and that board and that advising goes a long way with building your business better. And even though you sell half of it for what could be cheap right now, the other half could end up being worth way more later. So like that's part of this principle too. And then joining a bigger platform, again, with the idea of taking equity in that bigger business, there's something called multiple expansion, which is so small agencies right now are selling for literally like two times, maybe four times profit. Okay, maybe. And you're only getting 20% of that cash up front. And then you earn the rest over the course of three years by hitting targets. That's how this, these deals are done. We don't do deals that way, just to be clear, but that's a standard deal. Two to four times. When you get to like 2 million in EBITDA, that goes to like times, give or take. Then if you get to like 4 million, it's maybe eight times. Five plus, you can get to 10, maybe 12 times. And then if you get to 20, you're talking 15 to 18 times your profit. So what to understand that is your business, let's say you're a small agency, is worth two times. If you roll into a big agency and take equity, that same profit that you're contributing is now worth 15 times. So you get what's called multiple expansion off just selling, where your business is all of a sudden worth literally seven times what it was by yourself by just being a part of a bigger platform. Assuming you're joining a ship that's going to then sell again in the next three to five years, whatever that timeline looks like, you have to be careful because you're betting on their success and their ownership and all that. But if it goes well, your upside is way higher than what you're going to be able to build on your own unless you think you can get there on your own. These are all really big decisions you have to weigh. But that's why we've modeled out our M&A strategy the way we have. Because like our, the people are buying get a lot of what they're, they're initial, you know, what they're already making and like they, they make a lot of money. And then if there's a back-end deal to be had with the site, like if it's a sizable acquisition, we make sure that if there's an exit, there's going to be some benefit there too that's way bigger than what they can generate themselves. So then it's just a function of you comfortable to come along for the ride and be a part of something versus doing it yourself. That was a masterclass in how to exit your agency. And the thing that I, I loved the most was at the very beginning, which was if you're not ready to stick it out for another 10 years, take the money and run. Yep. Which is why I admire what you did, because like you seem very self-aware. There's like I don't want to do this forever. I hit this point. I want to grind through it. I'm out. That's not, nothing wrong with that. There's no like you made great money, Gossam. We talked about it a little bit. Again, this is where you have to be wary too of social media and the hype, where everyone says that they're worth 500. This has been a little bit of a rant, but like the fact that the word billionaire has become an industry term. Like Grant Cardone is not a fucking billionaire. He calls himself a billionaire. He was on a show called Undercover Billionaire. He's not worth a billion dollars. He has a fund that manages two billion. But that doesn't mean he's worth a billion or even close. And same thing with the, the All In podcast. Jason Calcanis, not a billionaire. Somehow it's a podcast of billionaires, even though he's not actually a billionaire. So like we hear these terms and I think it gets people's heads out of touch with what reality is, which is most of the time when you sell a business, like most businesses that sell don't make a lot of money up front. There's not these huge exits. And if you can make a few million dollars or more, like that is huge success. Almost nobody ever sees that. The average baby boomer, so whatever the average baby boomer's age is right now, I'm going to guess it's 70 or 68 or something. The average has a million dollars in net worth. So the average person that is at the tail end of their career, the average is a million bucks in all assets. And this is in a generation that had a lot more opportunity to build net worth than frankly, I think we have now because of how the barrier to entry. That's 1 million. So the assumption that you're even going to make a million dollars in cash in your lifetime, if you get there, holy shit. And if you get past that, these are this reality. So like the idea that like, 
oh, I'm just going to keep building till I get up to 100 million or a billion. Like, yeah, don't worry, I'm just going to do that. Just do that. Like the minutia amount of people that actually ever get that kind of an exit, it's not as many as talk about it on uh, Instagram reels. I promise you, most of those people haven't had that. And, and the few that have, get a ton of attention. So you hear about it all the time that these people have built these big businesses. You hear about Hawk with our 500 million in revenue and all these things. That's not, I'm incredibly fortunate that we hit timing. We did a lot of things right. But again, there's a lot in there that has to do with luck too, that I would say a lot of times you just have to be real with yourself. And we see it with agencies we buy. A lot of times you got to get punched in the face a couple of times and understand that like, it's not all up and to the right. You're just going to keep growing until you decide to sell it. That's not how life works. And so if you hit something and you've had a few years and you hit an inflection and you don't know you're you don't want to do it for another decade, then start I would start looking. If you are good with it, but well, the other side of this is I don't think that everybody needs to build to sell all the time. I think the idea of running a business for 30 years is not a bad thing either if you built it in a way that is sustainable for you and you enjoy doing it. So I think that's the way you have to weigh in. I think it all depends on the owner and like what the owner really wants. I mean, if they have a 10-year time horizon like you did at that particular moment when you got those, I assume those are LOIs and probably pretty nice ones. You're like, all right, I've got 10 years runway. But every owner sort of has a different timeline. And I think in Costum's case, it's a different timeline than like our timeline. It's like, what do you really, really want here? And even if you do sell in yourself, I'm assuming like you're small at a 2x multiple is under a million in EBITDA, like maybe even less than that. That's still a good payout. That's pretty good. That's better than, I don't know what the percentage is, but I mean, your net worth versus baby boomers is probably a pretty good analogy here. Like that's more money than most people will ever see in a lifetime. And I do believe baby boomers had a better opportunity at baseline to acquire net worth because the asset inflation that's happened in the past 50 years is crazy. Do I think that that's going to happen again? Maybe. But the reason they have that is because they've been able to sit on their 401ks and all the, you know, these things that were put together that I don't think the exposure to that and the growth is necessarily going to be the same going forward. So last question here, where do you see the digital marketing agency landscape now? And I've talked to a lot of probably a lot of the same guys that you've spoken with, at least from a private equity standpoint, as well as like very, very large agency owners. Are you bullish? I mean, obviously, you run an agency, so probably the answer to this is yes. But are you bullish in the space and the fact that every business will always need it? Or is it a component of, yes, this combined with the AI side of the equation can really multiply and force multiply and enhance uh, productivity in the space? Or is it just, we've got this disaster that's coming within the next year, and no matter what, people are always going to need marketing. What's your viewpoint of the digital marketing space just in general for any agency owner right now that either is considering selling selling into all those private equity emails that you probably get as an agency owner? Like, What's your outlook for the space You know, five, 10 years out? I think that AI is going to make things a lot more efficient. We talked about the communication factor. Like, think about that when it comes to AI. Like, if they don't have someone that's explaining things to them, that's running things for them, that it's helping, I think you get quickly turned off. And I think that people don't want to just have a ghost in the machine running their marketing. So I don't believe that AI is just going to replace what we do. I think it's going to make it more efficient. I think it's going to augment. We're doing a ton of work in that space. 
to look at technology enablement. And we always are, but like it's definitely accelerated. But I, I think service businesses are going to exist because people want to talk to people. And I think that's not going to change in five years. Will it change in 30 or 40 or 50? Maybe. But human adoption is really slow. ChatGPT was the first highlight of what it can be. Once we real, ChatGPT is managing an intern writing your content. Sure, it's nice to have an intern, but you still need to babysit it. You still need to oversee it. You still need to do a lot of stuff. And sometimes it's faster just to do it yourself. So it's not that crazy, but I do think it's on the way. And so I think AI is I'm more optimistic. I also believe that when you can be more efficient, it creates more resources, which then allows you to reinvest in other things and allows more growth of the economy. And that's what we've seen. Like poverty levels have gone from, I think it's 36% to 9% the past 30 years across the world. Like that's technology that's done that. And so I think that AI is going to continue to do that, which will mean that it's going to create a different type of middle class where it's going to be a lot of the shit that's grunt work won't be needed and people will be able to get jobs and other things because all the basics are covered. That's my assumption. I'm a bit of an optimist, but I think it's rational as well. And then in terms of the private equity market, I just always go back to like, nobody's that smart. And even though private equity people like to think they're that smart, they're still watching too much of news. They're watching CNBC. I watched it a couple of times this year with deals we had going through where you get scared by irrational things and private equity people are people. With the market the way it is and volatile and uncertain right now, I think you're going to have a hard time getting people to do a lot yet. But we have saw, I forgot the stat, I saw it yesterday, but it was the amount of money, venture capital and private equity get raised money from what's called LPs, limited partners. And it's whether it's pension funds or rich people, whatever. And they do what's called capital calls. When they have a business to invest in, they ask for all the cash to go invest. The capital calls, the amount of money that these funds have asked to use to invest this year has dropped incredibly which to me is crazy because every finance bro I know loves to quote Charlie Munger with be greedy when others are fearful. And right now everyone's fearful. And yet when everyone's fearful, everyone's fearful. And so it shows that like any other industry, investors are sheep and they're just chasing what everyone else is saying. And oh, we don't know with rates going up, it might fall apart, even though nothing has fallen apart. They're just playing scared. And so until there's a good sign or something in the market, which this is what's funny, is the market is almost recovered. We're in a great place with the NASDAQ and the Dow and the S&P. Like it's in a good, like I forgot what the number is this year, but I think the NASDAQ's up like 30% this year. 30 some odd percent. Yeah. Yeah. But they're still saying like, I don't know though. It's like, okay, well, something's going to trigger everyone to know and to get bullish again. And whenever that, and again, it's either going to go that way or it's going to be a little bit more of a disaster, which I don't actually believe. I think it's actually going to keep recovering. And when we get towards the end of this year, you're going to see everyone's going to have to start going again. Because the other part of this is these funds have to operate by placing money. So they're all going to start having to invest. It's what they're all talking about. I'm in the room with a lot of private equity guys. We have our venture fund. Everyone's been holding back on investing the past year, literally from like Q3 of last year to through Q2 of this year. Now everyone's on their stupid summer vacations because, you know, God forbid a VC takes doesn't take their month in the south of France. But I think people are going to get in a rush starting probably in September. We'll start to see a lot of progress because people have to get deals done by the end of the year. And then I think that'll kick stuff off. You also have IPOs starting again. So Quavio has been rumored to be IPOing soon. And there's a lot of, I think, Stripe, someone else is being rumored to looking at IPO again. So there's some IPOs that are coming out at the end of this year, early next. When that all starts to, if those are successful and there's good adoption, then we're good. The only thing that I think stands in the way on that, on the financial side, is interest rates. And we have a, some very smart people around us talking about what they think will happen. They still think it'll go up to somewhere between 6 and 7%, if not more. And if interest rates continue to climb, the problem is, is right now you can get 55 6% return in treasury yields or in savings accounts. Family offices, investors become more risk adverse because like 
if I can make 6% of my money without any risk whatsoever, why am I going to take risk with it? Like I want to retain my money and I'm making a sh- and inflation's back down. So I'm getting, I'm making more money than it, I'm getting in dealing with inflation. So I'm arbitraging that and retaining my cash. Like why would I take a risk, any type of sizable risk? So while that's happening, that may slow down some of the LP, again, the investors putting into funds, but these are all very complex things that no one can ever predict. And at the end of the day, People still like to gamble. They like to win. They hate to miss out. And so if you have good deals, if you're a good company that people can get their head around, I think you'll do fine. So you're bullish. He's hawkish. <laughs> He's hawkish. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's really the yeah, yeah, that's a different really, analogy. Yes. <laughs> it's more warlike. Eric, this has been amazing. Thank you for dropping so many knowledge bombs here on PT. I encourage you, if you're an agency owner, to go back and listen. Just like the escalation of multiple expansion right after the break, I would highly encourage you to listen to that again, because that is absolutely 100% accurate. You guys are doing it day in and day out. But multiple expansion is a real thing. And it's not just an agency thing. It's also for a lot of other businesses, but certainly in the agency space. Where can people find you? You mentioned a book, which might be a good one for some people to latch onto. The Hawk Method. Where can people find that? The best place is Amazon. Amazon's fine. Barnes & Noble. Oh, it's, it's easy to find. We got good distribution. Feel free to reach out to me at or slash Eric Huberman on social. You can go to hawkmedia.com. Check out Hawk AI. All these things. So we'll leave links in the show notes to all those resources there. Definitely check out Eric's book and connect with him on social. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Make sure that you do subscribe and leave a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what we can do better over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. You can follow Kasim and myself, me on LinkedIn, Kasim over on Twitter. And go back and listen to previous episodes. And obviously check this out on our YouTube channel. It's perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube. All resources and show notes, including all the links that we mentioned here about how you can connect with Eric over at perpetualtraffic.com. So on behalf of my awesome co-host, Kasim Aslam, peace. Till next show, see ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic. 